The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome to America's Web Radio. This is Ron Bachman, and you're listening to Healthcare Insight. Today, I want to take a look at the recent midterm elections. It certainly didn't turn out the way I had hoped. It was kind of depressing in many ways. It, um, uh, we expected some big red wave, didn't happen, and I want to try to analyze that today, but not from me as a layman, because I really don't know how to analyze this stuff. I want to analyze it from one of the country's real experts on the conservative movement, the historian, the wise man of the conservative movement, Victor Davis Hanson, and he will give us some insights today on what happened, and I've listened to some of his presentations before. Uh, he's been giving speeches around the country post-election, trying to explain, describe what's happening, both in the terms of who voted for who and how you break this down, and some of the um, impacts that this is going to have long-term after this election. It's not unique to this election, but there's something happening in this country that I don't think anybody understood until you begin to analyze what happened in this election, and it will show us some dramatic geographical changes that are occurring. So let me introduce Victor David Hansen and to have him tell us what in the world happened in this midterm election. Give us your thoughts. Well, it's a good question. I don't think anybody quite can figure it out because, as you say, a president in his first four-year term has a midterm election where one-third of the Senate, the upper house, and all of the representatives in the lower house are up for election. Human nature being what it is, usually candidates promise a lot and they don't they don't perform as well as their expectations. So traditionally, a president loses about 25 seats in the House and two or three Senate seats. And then we have historical um, trends that can either diminish or amplify that fact. And one of them is the president's uh, poll ratings. If a president is around 40 percent, then we get into uh, 1994 Bill Clinton territory or 2010 Barack Obama territory where you or Donald Trump 2018, all of whom had about 40% approval, and they lost respectively 63 seats, 53 seats, and I think 40 seats. So when Joe Biden is around 40%, and his main agendas on the border, inflation, fuel, crime, foreign policy are polling below 40, uh, 45%, 40% approval, and they are also polling in the mind of the voter as the most important issues. Everybody looked at this as a perfect storm. They said, weak president, traditionally in a vulnerable position in his first midterm, has it, uh, brought in agendas that are unpopular, so we're forecasting anywhere from 35 to 50 seats and anywhere from three to four to five lost Senate seats. Okay, Dr. Hanson, that's sort of the traditional historical perspective, which is a good foundation. But I want to try to dive down more deeply into some of the causes, effects, and reasons for the disappointment, at least for us conservatives, the disappointment in those elections. So can you 
give a little bit more perspective historically? Were there some uniquenesses about the matchups that were going on this time? Um, it was a very close um, number of people in the House on the Democratic side and the Republican side. Uh, does that make any difference? And how has it been in the past when Republicans may have been way down in, in numbers uh, to come back uh, against an unpopular president, unpopular agenda. So uh, are there any particular caveats you want to throw into the current uh, history? There is one caveat that I think is very important to, to, to add to this calculus, and that is in the case of the House, it was when they, when I talk about major inroads of the out party, they're usually behind. They don't have control of the House. In this case, the Republicans didn't have control of the House, but they were only seven down. So what I'm getting at is that if he had, they had won 25 or 30 seats, that would have been analogous in their final tally to something like their enviable positions in 2010 and 2000, uh, and 1994, where they had, they were way down and then they had to go way up. Here they were basically even. Was there anything else unique to this midterm that we should at least appreciate, recognize as to why uh, a big red wave might have occurred, for example, in the Senate. Can you describe to our audience what the circumstances were uh, for the Senate races that may have been different from what we normally would have expected uh, in an off-year election? And the other thing to remember is that the Senate flips over every two years with only one-third of its members. And the way it works is that sometimes they can be vastly asymmetrical in the number of Democrats or Republicans out of that 33 cohort or up. In this particular case, this was one of the years that Republicans had to uh, field and protect a lot of offices that were up for re-election. And the Democrats had very little exposure, meaning the incumbents were mostly Republican and the challengers and the, and so their, their existing seats were pretty much safe because incumbents usually win, but the, the Republicans have a lot of exposures. Nonetheless, the Republicans were hoping given, given the, the unpopularity of Biden, um, to win, as I said, and maybe three to five sentences. Okay, Dr. Hansen, all that's great background to sort of set the stage for our listeners. Um, many of them probably have heard that in the, the normal course of listening to the media talking about the various issues in this midterm election, but um, I want to get into a lot more detail, but let's give me uh, and our audience sort of a uh, a nutshell explanation of what you think happened, and then we'll go into some of the details of the issues that you raised. So in a nutshell, what, what, what happened on Tuesday night? I think in a nutshell, the Republicans felt that because five or six issues were polling the most important in the mind of the voters, and those issues uh, were not polling well for the Biden, that they were going to seize on them. And then they said the Democrats had seized on abortion because of the repeal of the Roe versus Wade was back to the states. And that was not an issue they felt that most voters cared about. And so everybody left and right had said this was a classic mistake on the part of the Democrats. And the polls showed that, that 
the Republicans had almost caught up by early October. They were in the polls in most cases ahead of the Democrats. But what apparently happened was Joe Biden, two weeks before the election took place, that is the last two, last week of October and the first of November, he tried a radically different tact. He decided that he was going to run on insurrection and democracy dies in darkness. And he made the premise in a very series of sharp speeches that if Democrats lost, then democracy was over with. In fact, we had presidential historian Michael Beschloss said, they will kill your children. It was that type of rhetoric. If you let these people who storm the Capitol take control, and they will, they're election denialists, they're nihilists, they're anarchists. And then the Paul Pelosi attack that happened just at the end of October, they said that this deranged ex-hippie nudist commune, homeless, illegal alien, was actually a MAGA adherent, and therefore he acted to attack the Pelosi home, and the deals of that attack we're still not completely aware of, apparently, but he acted out of right-wing rhetoric of the sort that Joe Biden said we had to crush. Yeah, who would have thought that saying democracy is going to end when we're about to have an election, which is the essence of democracy, that he could convince so many people that Republicans were so evil that they were going to destroy uh, democracy when we know it was Democrats that were trying to get rid of the filibuster, pact accord, add new states, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but he added another issue at the end there um, about uh, focusing on abortion. And I think Republicans probably um, missed the importance of that issue to young people in particular, which showed up at the polls in uh, uh, much greater numbers than they had shown up before. So can you talk a little bit about what he did with the abortion issue? And then they went full, they went whole hog, so to speak, on abortion and said they framed the abortion debate in the sense that we want to protect young women who will die because even though Roe versus Wade turns it over to the states, these lunatic states will bar abortion and young women will die uh, trying to have back alley abortions. And apparently from what we know from post polls, that those two issues galvanized young people and single women 20 to 30 that pretty much had not given an indication they were going to outperform their demographics, and they did. They got very enthused and angry and turned out. And then on the other hand, the Republicans who thought they had these issues that everybody cared about learned that younger people did not care about them as much as they did. Well, Dr. Hansen, I think you've hit on a very major key issue that was overlooked by Republicans, and that is the younger vote. Normally, they don't turn out to vote in numbers as great as the older population or the senior population. And the issues to the younger people, if you're a conservative, would, you would think that the price of a house, uh, mortgage rates, inflation, all those things might have a negative impact on young people, but they didn't. Um, and Republicans really didn't study or reach out to young people in the same way that they have been reaching out to minorities, the Hispanic community, the black community, 
uh, trying to talk about family and values. But when you put together the abortion issue, which uh, young females were concerned about, and maybe didn't fully understand that there's no prohibition against abortions. It's just that it's got, gone back to the states. Uh, abortions are just as available to now almost every place in the country, and you can go someplace if your state is too restrictive. Or you can vote out people in your state, the senators and representatives in your state, to be sure that your state laws are done appropriately. The forgiveness of uh, student loans. Uh, people were voting, I think, uh, for uh, the forgiveness of student loans, even though we all knew that that was going to be unconstitutional and ultimately was was so declared as that. But it was... I guess great politics of uh, transitioning from the problems that a president and his party would normally have in an off-year election to issues that related to a portion of the population that the Republicans hadn't paid as much attention to. And it turned out it was a critical part of the population. I know there's some other geographic issues that we're going to talk about in the next few sessions. So, uh, if the audience would just stay with us, I think the insights are just remarkable from Professor Hansen. And we're going to take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back with uh, Victor Davis Hansen. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. If you want the truth about politics, medicine, weapons, classic cars, and more, you'll want to tune in to America's Web Radio. You can listen to all of your favorite shows live at www.americaswebradio.com or on demand on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. That's www.americaswebradio.com. Hey folks, this is Victor with the On Point with Victor show. Make sure you listen every Tuesday 1 to 2, only right here on America's Web Radio, the On Point with Victor show. Remember folks, I'm not angry, I'm just right. And you can find out why every Tuesday from 1 to 2, the On Point with Victor show, only right here on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. Today we are talking to Professor Victor Davis Hansen, and he is giving us his analysis of what happened in the 2022 midterm elections and why it turned out so different than what all the pundits were talking about, so different from what the polling indicated, so different from what most of us who are conservatives had hoped it would turn out. There was no red wave. There was not even a, uh, a red splash, a red trickle. It was just sort of a red nothing in many ways. Now, we'll make some gains in the House, and hopefully uh, we've now taken over the uh, House of Representatives, which is no small deal, but ex- we expected to take over by a much wider margin, and we expected to take over the Senate so that we could have a real impact in preparation for winning the presidency in 2024. But The Democrats were looking at an issue that the Republicans really had missed. They had missed the young vote, the issues that related to the young voters, to get them out to the polls. They normally don't get out to the polls, don't bother, but young people have been more engaged and 
Biden gave them issues on abortion for young females, gave them issues on the um, uh, to getting out the vote because America democracy was going to end, gave them issues around getting a $10,000 to $20,000 forgiveness on their student loans. Republicans just didn't even think that that was going to be important. So while Republicans were doing that, um, the Democrats were focusing on uh, a constituency that was kind of forgotten. So as the Demo- uh, Democrats now were focusing on those issues, what was the problem with Republicans? Why did they think that uh, these other issues were more important to the general population? Why they while they hammered Biden on the, the price of gas, inflation, crime, they never really came out with a contract of America and said, if you vote for us, this is what we're going to do. We're going to open up Anwar. We're going to get Keystone going. Uh, we're going to get federal prosecutors to go into the cities and make sure that these criminals are not let out. We'll charge them with racketeering or federal offenses, whatever. They gave no solutions. And so people said, well, they're just they're just yelling. And we agree they're yelling, but they're not telling us what we're going to do. Well, of course, for us political junkies, we knew that Representative um McCarthy had actually put together a program similar to the contract with America, but it didn't get any traction. I think in 1994, Newt Gingrich was such a controversial figure that the media picked up on it. It was something new, something different. And so he was able to make people aware of that contract. In this case, uh, McCarthy really didn't, uh, wasn't able to penetrate that news cycle and get that word out. And he did it later than what Newt did, mainly because we had the uh, passing of uh, Queen Elizabeth in the UK and uh, a lot of stuff was postponed and sort of deference to that funeral and including uh, the Republican uh, contract that they were putting together uh, by McCarthy. So let's talk about some other things that uh, may have occurred. What about the Donald Trump influence? How do you view that? Uh, Donald Trump, I think quite unwisely, Oh, a week before the election, started attacking um, Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor, who was very popular. And in fact, he's the bright spot. He had a landslide victory. And he said that he was Ron, uh, Ron de Sanctimonious. And he then later he made fun of his wife. He said he would bring out dirt against uh, DeSantis, etc. And then uh, that was unwise. And then he hinted that he was going to announce his uh, intention to run that may have galvanized left-wing voters who despised Trump to get out and vote who might otherwise have sat it out and it might have turned off DeSantis supporters from voting for Trump candidates after he insulted their 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 um, favorite candidate you know professor hansen typically when a party loses the other party says well you know um they had the wrong issues and the party that lost will look at themselves and say, well, we really had the right policies, but the messaging wasn't right. We didn't package it uh, the appropriate way. But what you're saying, I think, is that this really was the Republicans' fault, not so much for the messaging, but missing the opportunity to reach out, for example, to young people and missing the opportunity to send a clear message because there was no real major single person that was presenting that message and you had Donald Trump that was jumping in at the end and creating some confusion. So why is it so difficult for the party, uh, the Republican Party in particular, to get their messaging right and to be more unified around the concepts 
that they want to address and not miss key areas that could affect a particular election. Yeah, usually the nominal head of the party is either the current president or the ex-president or somebody who by a claim will probably be the next president. In this case, Donald Trump fulfilled two of those criteria. He thinks he's going to be the next president, and he was the last president. So in a usual midterm election, Trump would then assume the mantle of the party unifier, and that would have entailed two or three things. He would have said, look, the message is that these people are McCarthyites, and they're... uh, equating their own defeat with insurrection. But what it's absurd because in sort of an egocentric idea, all they're saying is if we lose, then democracy is down. If we win, democracy is okay. And he could have exposed that. Then he could have said, and Joe Biden is buying off the electorate. He's emptying the petroleum reserve. He's giving amnesty to marijuana uh, convictions. And most importantly, he's forgiven illegally a half trillion dollars of student debt. And that's all intended to get you students to come out and young people and young women on the abortion to come out. But this is why you shouldn't do this. Here is your inflation, your crime, your border. And this this is what we're going to do about it. But instead of that leadership, he was engaged in a fight against Mitch McConnell on whether his candidates that he endorsed would be those that the Republican establishment endorsed. Anybody who voted for his impeachment or criticized him, he attacked. And he was raising money separately from the Republican congressional funding. And then he was very worried about Ron DeSantis. And the result was there was no coherent leadership. Let me change gears a little bit and ask you about the polling, because the polling seemed to be very wrong. What was crazy was that it looked like this red wave from every historical perspective, but the polling also seemed to support that. Give us your perspective on what you see happened with the polling uh, that we all kind of relied on as well. And then we had some very, very astute conservative against the grain pollsters, the Trafalgar group, insider advantage, Rasmussen, and they had been so much, uh, so much more accurate than the standbys, the Emerson poll, the, the Susquehanna, the Monmouth poll, New York Times, CBS, NBC, Wall Street in past elections. So when they came out and they said, we have a different formula, we look at the suppressed conservative voter that will not talk to pollsters, and we factor that in, and therefore, all these candidates that now apparently have lost, if you look at the polls, they were either dead even in these conservative polls or ahead, and that created, a, I think, a sense of laxity or delusion that when you looked at Blake Masters and Carrie Lake and uh, Herschel Walker and Lee Zeldin, on the last day of the polling, on conservative polls, they were either all tied or ahead. And people said, well, they've been right before. So there was a sense of premature celebration, red wave. Okay, so the um, the polling gave us false hope. Uh, they have been more accurate in the past, but that doesn't mean they're going to be more accurate in the future. It's kind of like buying stocks. If it went up in the past, you say uh, past um Results of no uh, predictor or guarantee of the future, and I guess that's what sort of um, occurred here. 
we also say in elections that money isn't always what matters. It's important, but in the past we've seen many, many uh, Republicans win uh, by spending far less than Democrats. But what was the money um, uh, um, relationship this year? What was the ratio of dollars spent on Democrats versus money that the Republicans have? Because we know that the Democrats have got very big donors in uh, Silicon Valley and in um, uh, Hollywood and Wall Street. And a lot of the support that they get, especially from Silicon Valley, isn't in dollars, but it's in the ability to um, direct people's attention as they're reading the news from Facebook or Twitter or Snapchat or uh, on YouTube, whatever it is, Democrats have a better hold on that from the um, uh, the vendors that are in the marketplace uh, distributing news. The left outspent them. They spent outspent the, the Republicans three to one, and they they scared the population, the voter electorate. And I, I don't think the Republicans were prepared for the fact that they're going to. I think still take the House means that for all these mistakes. They can just barely, and they will barely stop all legislation. If they take the House, Joe Biden can't pass any legislation whatsoever. There will be investigations under Republican auspices of everything from Hunter Biden to Dr. Fauci, and he'll have to rule by executive order. Had they taken the Senate, they could have not only passed the legislation in both houses and sent it to the president where it would force him into embarrassing vetoes, but they could have stopped all of his hardcore left-wing judicial appointments or any appointments, and they were prepared to do that. Well, Dr. Hansen, you make a really important and critical issue here around the fact that the Republicans are not going to take the Senate um, is going to be... 50-50 at best, and as of today, as I'm recording this, it could be 51 to 49, depending on what ultimately happens in Georgia uh, in early December. I think it's December 9th in that special runoff election. So controlling the House gives us control of the purse, but we know historically the Republicans have typically caved on spending issues because they want to get money for their own constituents, and they do as much pork barrel at times as the Democrats ever did. But the issue on the Senate, in my mind, is so important. If I had to choose which house to uh, control, it would have been the Senate because I have seen and I have watched the judicial appointments and the interrogation of those going through committees. These are far, far left-wing Marxists that are going into many of the judicial positions that in case, many cases, uh, can have lifetime appointments. And so that's going to affect this country, uh, far more into the future than some of the the um, uh, budget issues that the Republicans may be able to address. But the investigation on the Republican side, if it goes well, uh, that'll be very helpful if the public doesn't perceive it as just being vicious and vindictive. And I'm afraid that's what the media will present as well. So there's, um, there's a little silver lining there taking that control, but a real caution in my mind as to whether or not it will properly be done or even properly perceived by a hostile press that won't like Republicans getting into these issues and digging up the, the facts, the alternative narrative, if you will, that may not match up with the uh, mainstream media's interpretation of what has gone on. I hope they don't try to rehabilitate Trump uh, with all the stuff that he had to put up with. Yes, he was 
lied about, that he was deceived, the CIA, the FBI, the DOJ all worked against him unfairly because he had attacked them and they had all the power of the uh, deep state to go back against him. So I hope it's not to exonerate uh, Donald Trump, but to look forward in uh, whatever candidates come forward. I think we've got some really good candidates other than Donald Trump, as much as I might like him and others may like him. He is divisive, and the hatred of the other side comes out very strongly. Again, fair or unfair, I'm afraid that's uh, the dynamic that could occur. Let's take another quick uh, commercial break, and we'll be right back with this fascinating analysis of what happened in the 22 uh, midterms. If you have lost a loved one and were left with a firearms collection and are not sure how to dispose of them safely, or you may have firearms you no longer want, this message is for you. I am a licensed FFL firearms dealer in the state of Florida, specializing in estate firearm purchases. It is very important that all firearm transactions be handled according to state and federal laws. You can contact me for information at firearmliquidationservice at outlook.com, or you can call or text me at 407-921-8100-247 and ask for James. Again, for information contact me at firearmliquidationservice at outlook.com or call or text me at 407-921-8100. All communications are strictly confidential. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your healthcare freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. Today we are talking to Professor Victor Davis Hansen, who's giving us insights as to what happened in the 2022 midterm elections, why the red wave, as everybody was promoting, as we were all excited about as conservatives, why it didn't happen. And delving deeper into the issues than maybe many of you out there listening in have heard from the traditional media or even on Fox or any other news media about what really happened. Uh, we've already identified the issue of young people um, that came out to vote. A lot more Republicans didn't address their issues, and they heavily, heavily voted Democrat. And on these close races made a significant difference to give the Democrats the victory over Republicans in many, many locations that were out there in both House seats, Senate seats, and governor seats. So Republicans are going to have to step back. I think uh, Dr. Hansen is right that um, we're going to have, as a conservatives, think about the issues related to young people who are voting more and more and heavier and heavier in each election. But as we continue as a divided country ideologically, um, I think there's something else going on geographically. And Dr. Hansen, could you address that kind of issue, this other major uh, point that I've heard you make before about how this country is dividing? Isn't there really a, a desire out there, if you look at the country as a whole, for people to actually try to figure out how we can begin to unify and get along and not just have this constant division among races and classes and ages and all these other issues. Don't people really want to get along? Yeah, they are. But what we're doing is under our federal system, 
we're self-selecting. And so in states that are socialist, such as California, Illinois, and New York, they are not the same states they were 30 or 40 years ago that would elect a Ronald Reagan or a George Duke Mason or a Pete Wilson or a George Pataki uh, or Mayor Daley, a conservative. They are, are very progressive neo-socialist states, and they're broke or they're not working and they're highly taxed and they're getting enormous exoduses. And over the last 20 years, maybe 8 to 10 million people have left those states and gone to Florida, to Texas, to Tennessee. And the result is that... Uh, a, a guy like Beto O'Rourke can spend a hundred million dollars and he's never going to win in Texas because every conservative from these blue states will go to Texas and they, they are, they get hyper conservative. By the same token, when you leave these blue states, a good candidate like Lee Zeldin or Tiffany Smiley in Washington or uh, Tudor Dixon in Michigan, against a very poor Democratic candidate, it's not going to win because those states are becoming bluer and bluer as conservatives leave them. And so what's happening is the country is its even accentuating those differences because people are self-selecting in a very mobile society. And its we can't quite figure out what's going on. But if you go to Florida today or Tennessee or Texas and you go to California the next week or New York or Illinois, you believe, you believe you're in a different country. They're that, they're becoming that different. Let me stop there and just absorb what you just said because I'm not sure I've heard that any place else before. That conservatives who were living in blue states have become frustrated with those states and are migrating, are living those states and coming into states that are uh, more red states, more conservative leadership, whether it's Texas or Florida or Tennessee, which also have all those three states have zero income taxes. So it's a it's an economic issue as well as an ideological issue. Uh, but one thing I've always been concerned about as a resident of Florida is that many of those blue state residents would move into Florida and vote. Democratic bring their politics with them. And so I've talked to many people over time, neighbors have moved in, and I said, we'd love to have you here. Welcome. But don't bring your politics and ruin this state like was ruined in the other states. But it turns out many of those people are naturally conservative. So I think it's a dynamic, a geographic dyna- dynamic of, of, uh, of movement across the country of 8 to 10 million people uh, in these very close races. That's obviously um, uh, the difference uh, in elections that we're becoming a, a red state country and a blue state country uh, by this immigration, and you really can't get good candidates of the opposite ideology uh, in these other states to be elected. Um, that's a fascinating uh, dynamic of how this country is uh, is separating itself. So as you are hypothesizing that we had this dynamic going on to create a red country and a blue country state by state with this migration that's going on. Don't we see the effects of the blue state uh, socialist approach with high taxes? And and we've got a, a separation of the wealthy and the poor that's even greater than we've ever had or have in any other state that, that is especially red state. There's no middle class in those states uh, that you talked about. California as a great example of that. People um, if there's jobs being created, it's low-paying jobs, it's agricultural jobs, it's 
it's jobs that um, are at the low end, and there's no middle class that's available out there. So uh, give us your um, your interpretation of what's going on there and why people aren't seeing the negative effects of the socialist policies. They were creating low, low jobs, but the tech industry, as you've read, is blowing up. So this week, Mark Zuckerberg, Twitter, and Facebook, they're going to be laying off tens of thousands of employees. They're not sustainable operations, partly because of mismanagement, partly because of the global uh, recession. So uh, a lot of people look at, I guess that it would be analogous if you look at the EU today, and let's just take for an example, Switzerland was a member of the EU and it had a free market economy and it was less socialist than it is. And people were free to go there and they all spoke the same language. You could see what would happen to the EU. People would be going in every direction. Leftists would be going to left-wing countries. Conservatives would be if they had common ties. What prevents that is that these are separate nations. But here in the United States, we're creating separate nations, but of Americans that have common ties, and the common ties are attenuating. Well, accepting that this geographical dynamic is occurring, what does it really mean for this country? What does it mean for our politics? What does it mean for the United States existing as it has before, or is it the change is so great that we'll never get back to sort of where we were, where it mattered who was running and the the policies or the good nature of the person, or we went back and forth between Republicans and Democrats. What's going to happen as we solidify these red and blue uh, nation states? And what, what that means is that when you look at the crisis in depth, the individual personalities didn't matter as much for the candidates didn't matter. People were voting on ideology, party affiliation, politics. So you got a guy like John Fetterman that even people in Pennsylvania said is non compos mentes. He's totally unable to fulfill the duties of a U.S. senator, yet I'm going to vote for him because he is a one vote in the Senate that we need, or he is a Democrat, and they're going to stick with him no matter what. Debates don't matter anymore. Uh, John Fetterman was humiliated in that debate, tragically so. Kathy Hochul, the mayor of the governor of New York, did dismally. Carrie Lake, the uh, contender for the governorship here in Arizona, where I am today, she tore up her, her Miss Holmes, her opponent. They didn't matter. And when and candidates just refused to debate, that was always the mark of a loser in American politics. They were cowardly. They didn't. They weren't up to it. But there was no downside. They just said, "We're not going to debate." And so everything that had been the particulars and the ingredients to winning or losing or, or they're being um, airbrushed out. We're getting down to a hardcore, you're either with me or you're against me, a partisan uh, ideology. And it starts from the left. And in reaction to it, a beleaguered conservative said, we, we're going to be doing the same thing. That geographic um, dynamic, I think, is a fascinating issue that you brought up. I think it's accurate uh, from sort of a layman's viewpoint. Uh, but there's another issue I want you to try to address, too, because I think it's a carryover from the disaster of COVID and the way it changed our election. Tell us about your interpretation now of the way we vote 
in, in this country and its potential impact going forward. The way that an election is conducted in America today bears no resembles, resemblance whatsoever to the way it was 10 years ago in 2012. 2012, about 25 million ballots were cast, absentee or what they called in some states early voting. You could vote in a series of consecutive days. But all of those states that did that, that small percentage, had about a 5% rejection rate. That meant if a mail-in ballot came in, there were so few, they examined them very carefully, they said, the name is not complete, out. The, re- the address is not complete, out. The name in the address does not match the registrar's computer list, out. They forgot to sign their name, out. The ballot came in two days after, out. But when they changed under the cloak of COVID in 2020, these state legislatures and the, you know, it was just a very, very systematic effort funded by Silicon Valley to sue in the courts to say that this was racist, discriminatory. You could just have your first name. You could, you could send your ballot in late. All of those variables were enacted by, illegally and now they're all under appeal and they will be appealed, but too late. The result was that the rejection rate in most states went down to 0.2, 0.3. That was a magnitude of 10. At the same time, the absentee ballots and early ballots went over 100 million. So you had basically, in the space of a decade, reduced Election Day and hollowed American holiday almost, not officially, but de facto, into a construct. It was irrelevant. Only 30%, 30-40% were actually showing up on Election Day. And they used COVID to do this, and they were very adept at changing the laws. They had the money, the capital, the media, the influence, Silicon Valley, and the Republicans had no idea what was going on. They were still fossils who said, on election day, we get out the vote. We get cars and pick everybody up. We we go to the polls and vote, and they, they, they have not mastered that, and it was very apparent in this election that these ballots – we don't know when the ballots come in. There's no such thing in America as there was in 1960s, 70s, and 80s that on election day, people vote, and by 7 o'clock in the evening till midnight, they find it. They go to bed, and they know who won. People in America go to bed. They won't know who wins for a week because these ballots come in at all different times. There are all different sorts of rules in different states, and it's, a, it's an entire mess, and it's a real dagger to the heart of democracy. Well, Dr. Hansen, I believe you're exactly right on that issue. I personally hope that the Republicans get more people voting earlier so we can reach people that might have had uh, some distraction on Election Day, wasn't able to get there. They had some family issue. They had some business issue that came up. They had to go out of town and didn't get a chance to vote early and get their vote counted. So Republicans need to do a better job of getting people out. I just hope that the Republican National Committee doesn't take that as the major issue of just getting their votes in early with fewer and fewer people actually voting on election day. I think the other issues that you raised, the issue of the young people, the issue of recognizing the geographic movement of people, uh, those are really fascinating uh, analysis, at least to me, of what happened in this election. And those are some of the issues, especially the young people, uh, how to solve some of their issues. So let's take a final commercial break. And we'll come back for our final section of this uh, program this week and talk a little bit more in depth about the election and see if there's some other aspects that might be helpful and look for a positive 
that might come out of the selection experience. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. When it comes to car magazines, are you tired of reading about mega-dollar collector cars you can't afford, or endless reporting on auctions and how-to tech stories that don't interest you? Then Crankshaft is the car magazine for you. Crankshaft is a 144-page softcover quarterly filled with all sorts of fascinating stories, the type of car features you won't find anywhere else. It features American and foreign cars, pre- and post-war era cars of distinction including sports cars, muscle cars, and regular family sedans too. To discover what many car enthusiasts are saying is the best car magazine ever published, you can purchase either a single copy for $12.95 plus $3 postage, or a one-year subscription, four issues, for $59.95. To order your copy, go to www.crankshaftmagazine.com. That's www.crankshaftmagazine.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the final segment of this hour, and we are talking to Victor Davis Hanson, a great uh, historian, conservative, philosopher, professor, and we're asking him about the 2020 midterms. And what I want to ask him about next is about the election process in the United States. There's a lot of early voting that goes on and uh, debates are becoming less and less, as you described. Maybe they, they're not even relevant anymore, but there are people refusing to debate or they debate after so many mail-in ballots are already cast. And so they don't necessarily really know the candidate or the flaws. The candidate hasn't really been tested with the media and debates and they may have Myers, uh, uh, buyer's remorse. Uh, once they really get a chance to see firsthand the way a candidate responds in a debate setting, for example. But this whole process of so many voting before uh, the candidates are really tested, um, Professor, doesn't that kind of eat away at the ultimate trust that we have in elections? And how do we move forward with uh, with a situation like we have, and how do we take advantage of it in so many ways of one party doing something, the other party, maybe the Republicans aren't doing enough early voting, and they need to do that because that's what the rules are. But doesn't all this kind of work against um, the trust in elections when it's so easy to claim there's some fraud? It, it does, and then especially when people who commit fraud or they're irregular or have a preemptive defense that says, if you dare criticize me, you're a voter suppressionist or you're an election denialist. And we know what happened to you guys after January 6th. And then you add into, and you, you described exactly the, the fate of Donald Trump. He had a terrible first debate in the 2020 election against Joe Biden. He was rude. He interrupted. He thought he was going to rat. It was, and then he had a very good, a very confident and a, and a very clear victory over Biden, uh, weeks later, but 60 million people had already voted. It, it was irrelevant. Well, professors, we're talking about elections. What other aspects or changes or uniquenesses in state election laws are you looking at that um, uh, maybe require some unique campaigning or unique focus in order to be sure that uh, the winning candidate 
that you want to win actually uh, comes through with that victory. There's two other things that in the equation that are force multipliers. In Georgia, we have a 50% majority. It's a state, and there's a couple like that. You have to have 50%. So now the whole nation will be sitting on needles and pins Why this one particular state says the winner on election day is not the winner, unless the, and neither one has 50%. So we're going to replay what we did in 2020, where Georgia held everything up. And then we have this crackpot idea of ranked voting, where you list one, two, three, four candidates as happens in Alaska or in the mayoralty race in New York. So we have three or four competing systems in these states, and they're not compatible. And the result is that Americans are losing confidence in the integrity of their balloting. Professor, President Trump has decided he's going to run again in 2024. He just made that announcement. But in the election that we just had, the midterm election, um, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida um, won by almost 20 points. He blew away his competition. He um, he was able to win traditionally Democratic um, uh, counties, Broward County. He won over the Hispanic vote. He won over the black vote. Um, he just um, increased his stature quite a bit with this election, while many of Trump's uh, hand-picked uh, candidates uh, for senator, even for governor, uh, didn't make it. So Trump is somewhat diminished. But how do you see this whole presidential campaign sort of shaping up if it's Trump and DeSantis or Trump and others? How do you see the Republican Party being able to handle uh, this developing situation? I don't see how the Republicans avoid a knockdown drag out fight between the two. And Trump, as we knew from the primaries, cannot just be very nasty in a primary debate or battle, he can be very effectively nasty and find things that weaken. He tore Scott Walker to pieces. He destroyed Chris Christie as a candidate. He made Marco Rubio, he turned him into a character, little Marco. Ted Cruz all of a sudden became lying Ted Cruz. And each of the, he, he absolutely humiliated Ron, Rand Paul. And so what I'm getting at, if you're Donald Trump, he feels that DeSantis has had the beneficiary, he's the beneficiary of an influx of conservative voters that have changed Florida rather than his policies winning them over to the conservative side. I don't know to the extent whether that's true or false. Well, how do you see the conflict between Trump and DeSantis if they're sort of number one, number two candidates likely to be running or for the nomination, seriously running for the nomination in 2024. How do you see Trump handling a very popular governor uh, of his own state even and that he admittedly uh, voted for uh, in this midterm? He's saying to all of us, and he said this explicitly yesterday, he said, I know things about Ron DeSantis and his background that you don't want to know. And his wife is running his campaign. It was a very mean thing to say because his wife is a cancer survivor, etc. But what he's trying to tell us is, you put him on the stage and you unleash me against him, and I will tear this man apart just like I tore every other person who said that they could never be torn apart. So, Professor, you're describing a conflict between the candidates and how they might interact. Where do you think the Republican... Uh, populace is where where's where are the Republican voters do you think going to stand or 
What's the conflict going to be between the Trump supporters, the Santos reporters, or the non-Trump supporters, but people that like his policies that just don't want him to run again? Trump supporters, mainstream Republicans that didn't support him but voted for him, they're all in a panic. Because I think what you're telling me is what most of the conservative Trump supporters have already would agree with you, that you can have the Trump successful four years without the excesses and without damning Trump. You can you can thank him for creating a new middle class populist party for winning and keeping Hillary Clinton out of the White House. But you don't think that's sustainable given the way that he invites uh, gratuitous arguments, controversies, and incurs such hatred. Well, right or wrong, he was accused of things while he was president, before he was president, that he was not responsible for, and it was made up to destroy his presidency. So I can understand he wants to come back and redeem himself. But... Hatred and money on the left goes a long way to defeating a candidate, rightly or wrongly. And we want to win a conservative presidency in 2024. So how can somebody deal with Trump and ask him to step aside in any way to be a sort of a senior statesman? And so who's going to go into Mar-a-Lago and say, Donald Trump, you should become a senior statesman. You had a wonderful four years. You're in compared to the Biden record. History will look kindly upon you. You can be magnanimous and barnstorm and get Ron DeSantis. You can be an ambassador. You can be a senior statesman. You'll have a great life. Why would you want to go back into this cauldron in your late 70s? But no one seems to be willing to do that, that has influence upon him. So, Professor, give us your uh, narrative on... um on DeSantis, on Governor DeSantis. I mean, he took a lot of pot shots from Washington during his own campaign. They were focused on him knowing he could be a candidate in 2024 against Biden if Biden decides to run. Local media, the liberal press in Florida was against him, saying terrible things about him. How do you um, recognize or characterize uh, his victory in 2024, which was uh, a landslide for him? The DeSantis narrative. Everybody said he has the background, he's in Ivy League, he's been in the military, he's a very good speaker, he has an enormous intelligence, command of the facts, but he was a technocrat. He didn't have the fire in the belly, he couldn't. So what he had tried to do the last three or four years that says, I can be as tough as Trump on the left, I can tell Disney that if they're going to push down the throats of Floridians that a transgendered experience when you go to Disneyland, then I'm not going to give them a special tax break. Or he can say to the critical race theory lobbyists, not in our schools. Or he can tell Dr. Fauci, we're not going to mask in perpetuity. And he can do it with a Trump-style fire. And he did that. And then the third element of that trifecta was he said, and I can do all this without getting on Twitter, without calling somebody an a-hole or without insulting. And so you get Trump's vigor, but you get and you get the agenda that we are indebted to him for reformulating the Republican Party, but you don't get the downside. Well, Professor, in many ways you paint a very bleak picture of infighting, but, you know, infighting and that debate over ideas and personalities and visions for the future 
as we approach uh, uh, very quickly, it'll be here in 2024 elections. We're already seeing announcements. So the Republican Party, you can look at from one perspective, as you described, is going to be very divided. Uh, but I think both candidates, whether it's a Trump, whether it's DeSantis, or even uh, Vice President Pence, uh, I think they all have a conservative philosophy. They're probably all going to follow the same basic concept of America first that Trump set out. I think they're all sort of targeting more a Republican Party that focuses on the middle class and the working class, the blue collar people. And hopefully there are enough of them to bring them across the line when they show that I think they ought to show more interest in the black community and the underprivileged uh, and the rotting out of our of our major cities uh, that affects everybody, um, and I think people would vote uh, very strongly towards a compassionate approach to bringing us together, to uniting us, and that's one thing Trump doesn't do. So you, on one hand, talk about the conflicts in the Republican Party, but on the other hand, it could be a very healthy, dynamic debate. It shows the country that uh, they're not uh, crazies. They're trying to lead us in a different direction. There's the swinging of the pendulum, and I think we've gone too far to the left, and somebody needs to bring it back, and that will be the challenge to convince the American people that they're going to finally get around to finding a way to unify us. So give us a summary of what you think is going to happen in this next election and give us some hope. I think we're trying to correct in one of these periods of American change response, change response. And uh, I am confident that in 2024, there'll be a conservative president and a conservative government. And we must remember that uh, Donald Trump stopped Hillary Clinton. If she, if he hadn't have done that, we would have been in terrible shape. He had a very good four years. And I think, it's going to be very hard for him, given the maltreatment that he received, Russian collusion, Hunter laptop, the COVID lies, uh, you know, pangolin and bat caused the, not the Wuhan lab, like Trump said, etc. that he, that it's going to be very hard for him to say, I was treated so poorly, I want redemption. And you're going to have to say to him, life is tragic, but we're going to have to have primaries and let the people decide. And that's going to be a tough business for a while. Well, there you have it, audience. I think a pretty good analysis of the midterm elections and a look into the future, a peek into 2024 dynamics that may occur. Join us again next week on America's Web Radio. This is Ron Bachman signing off for Healthcare Insight. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.